Welcome to Destination CMO, a podcast about growth, business, and the power of marketing. With your host, Vincent Famvan, a three-time chief marketing officer, member of the Forbes Communication Council, and a 40 Under 40 award recipient. On this show, we invite our guests to share the most important stories happening today in business and tech, told through the lens of a senior marketing leader. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm so excited for our guest, Paige O'Neill, CMO at Sitecore. She brings over 20 years of experience in senior marketing roles across a lot of different areas of enterprise software, customer experience, cloud computing. Prior to joining Sitecore, Paige held the CMO roles at major brands, including the digital workplace platform provider Prism, as well as IT consulting firm SDL. And she also served as the VP of marketing for Aprimo. Paige, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. I love the fireplace in your background, like so cozy and what a great space to be in. One question that I have for you kicking off is when you were a child, what did you think you were going to be growing up? Or like, what was that aspirational? When I grow up, I want to be XYZ. It's funny because I was actually on an episode of a local television show called The Peggy Mitchell Show. And it was like one of these shows where they would have kids on. It was a like a kind of Captain Kangaroo type of thing. And I'm on that show famously, my grandmother was watching and she didn't realize it was me until they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, <laughs> I want to be a veterinarian. I love animals. And I was planning to be a veterinarian when I was little. So that was what I saw myself as. <laughs> <laughs> that is way better than what I wanted to be. I was like obsessed with the trash trucks, like the trash trucks driving by and they had like the arm that would lift up the trash can. And so my aspirational answer was I wanted to be a trash truck driver, <laughs> which growing up as an Asian American in Southern California is not really what your parents want to hear as like an aspirational <laughs> job I want to get in, into waste management. You and I have both kind of found our ways into a career in marketing, leading marketing teams and helping companies grow throughout that childhood that you had. Like, how did your parents shape who you are today and what type of impact did they have on you? My mother always really drilled into me, and I think drilled is the right word, from a very young age <laughs> that as a woman, I should think about being independent. She used to tell me that you need to make sure that you make your own way, that you don't have to rely on anybody else. And she really instilled this sense of independence in me. I was an only child, and I think it just led to me having a very independent spirit and always just kind of thinking to myself that I was growing up in a relatively small town in Kentucky. And so to say, I'm going to move to New York and I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, it wasn't just a given. And so I think that her telling me to be independent and setting that expectation that I should make my own way and that I should have that expectation for myself really paved the way for me to expect great things for my career. And throughout that career, like, what are some of the things that you wish you knew earlier in your career? If you could give advice to a younger version of yourself, what are the lessons that you would have wanted to know in advance? When I think back on, especially when I, I spent about 10 years working uh, for Oracle, which was an amazing experience because back before, you know, Oracle's so massive right now. Was They were still big when I was there, but they were, I think, about 25,000 people, which is pales in comparison to how big they are now. And I had so many different great jobs there. But I remember, and I was pretty young, I was in my mid to late 20s, and just remember being so stressed because there was just so much going on at Oracle. They were going through such tremendous growth. I was the head of database PR at the time, 
which was kind of a great job to have, right? Because Oracle was the number one in databases. This was before they started making so many different acquisitions and the database was really the core of their business, still is, but was really more so then. And I just remember being so stressed out and I was late to a meeting and I you know, was probably looking pretty disheveled and I came running around the corner, like sliding to the elevator bank. And there was a woman who at the time, she was the head of communications for Oracle. Her name is Margaret Lasecki. And she was standing there at the elevator. We were going to the same meeting and I came sliding around the corner. My papers are flying. And she looked at me and she said, (laughs) Paige, slow down. They'll wait for us. And she was just so calm. And so it was easy for her to say, right? She's the head of communications. (laughs) I was the PR manager. They aren't going to wait for me. (laughs) But it was it was really a lesson in poise and almost like fake it till you make it, right? Like there's no reason to be running and disheveled and what is the image you're putting out? And it was a very early instance of me looking at someone as a role model and thinking about emulating their persona and what they were putting out into the world and realizing that sense of calm. You may not feel that inside, but mm-hmm. people don't know that unless you can be less transparent about what's actually going on inside when you're stressed or when you're in a moment where it's a high stakes pressure game and just put forward the calm that you actually want to have in the meeting. And that can be a really powerful way to lead and to put people at ease, right? What a way for her to put me at ease because I just immediately went, okay, I'm not late. Here she is. And it seems fine. Yeah, I love that lesson early on. And one of the things that you mentioned in terms of fake it till you make it throughout my career, I was always waiting for that moment where I wouldn't be doing that anymore. And maybe at some point aspiration in my career, I will hit the point where I feel like I have all the answers. But there's this acceptance now that throughout your career, there's always something that you're going to learn. And truth be told, I think the roles in my career in the past where I have achieved like what I would consider to be mastery of that role Oftentimes, then things got boring and I actually moved on to my next role or over to a different organization or a different type of product, many times like within the same company. Throughout your career, you mentioned these different roles that you had at Oracle. Like, how do you think about growth within an organization, whether that is expanding, broadening opportunities within that organization, making lateral moves to get exposure to different areas versus the time to move on to a new organization? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think about it differently now that I'm the CMO than I did earlier in my career. And I get this question all the time from people in my organization. They're young or they're aspiring to move up the career ladder. And the thing that I always tell everyone, what was super important for me and advice I give to people on my team is, first of all, what are your goals, right? And so I have a lot of people come to me and say, oh, I want to be CMO someday. How do I get there? And the advice that I give is, well, the first thing that you want to do is you want to get as much experience as possible across the different facets of marketing. And that means some lateral moves, taking on a responsibility where you've got the hands-on for that particular discipline of marketing. I was able to do that in my career. I started in PR, as I mentioned. I started working for PR agencies. And then I moved in-house at Oracle and worked on PR there. And then I remember I wanted to move over to product marketing. And it was a big deal to do that. Communications people, to at least at Oracle, they didn't typically move from PR over to product marketing. And I just remember thinking, well, I love watching the way the message comes together and communicating that message out to the press. But I wanted to be the hands-on, the product marketer, shaping that content from that side of it. And so I asked, I had great relationships at the time, the heads of marketing at Oracle, and I made the ask to be able to make that move. 
And it was a big deal to do it, but I was able to make the ask, make the transition. And then from there, I kept taking lateral roles with different levels of responsibility. First, it was product marketing. And then I got a little bit of demand gen under my belt. And from there, I was able to start getting heads of marketing roles. And so I think you have to ask for it, know what your goal is yourself, and then don't be afraid to articulate it to someone else. And you know, how do you know when it's time to move on? I mean, I think if you feel like the learning has stopped or you're not getting, if you ask and you're not getting the opportunities, I've never been shy about moving on when I felt like there was an opportunity to take a step forward. Or if I wasn't, if my needs weren't being met, I didn't feel like I was growing within my company. And I think that now I find myself in a position where I've got people on my team who are asking for more responsibility. And I know as a leader, I have to keep them challenged or they're going to do kind of what I did earlier in my career and they're going to move on. So I think it's a real challenge that the younger people that are aspirational to come up through the organization, they need to put onto their leaders to kind of, hey, if you want to retain me, this is what it's going to take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love the point that you brought up in terms of great marketers can work in-house, but a lot of great marketers also work within an agency environment and just how the different worlds and different experiences that you can have on both sides. I made a similar move in my career and I didn't even actually move from marketing into product marketing. I actually moved into product management. And that was actually what gave me a lot of the product experience to then be able to take a step back, go back to the bread and butter of marketing that I love and be able to do that with a completely different perspective. You talk to so many great marketers, especially in the enterprise B2B space, where they've had stints in sales in part of their careers as well, just because there's the age long, like not battle between marketing and sales, but it's very different perspectives in terms of one being like a theoretical long-term exercise. And the other one is where the rubber hits the road and where the conversations are happening with the customers or potential prospects. As you think through your life accomplishments, like the legacy that you want to leave on the world, like how do you think about that? And like, what are the things that you're proud of that you still want to be part of your story in the future? Yeah, legacy. It may be too soon to be thinking about that, but... (laughs) I think about the teams that I've worked with. That's always the first thing that comes to mind for me. I'm very fortunate that I've got many people on my team who have been crazy enough to come and work with me at multiple different companies. And I'm really proud of that. It's something that I want to hopefully continue on with. And I think about the opportunity that you have as a leader, as a person in the C-suite, as a female in the C-suite, there's still too few of us to be able to make an impact, to give advice. I have so many people come up to me and just say, wow, you really inspire me. How did you do that? And it always kind of takes me by surprise because I don't really think of it as at anything that extraordinary. But to, to realize that you're a role model and that people are looking at what you do and that you've got a responsibility not only to carry yourself in a way that brings that inspiration through to other people that might be watching, but also to kind of give back and give advice and to help pave the way. And so I try to do that. I mean, I probably don't do it as often as I like to, but I try to think about that and and think about how can I keep the people part of it to be something that's truly inspiring to me that I want to carry forward and, and have this reputation as a leader of someone who is compassionate, empathetic, authentic. That's probably if I had to use one word to wrap up this long answer, I'd like my legacy to be authenticity. Yeah. And the paying it back, I mean, it's fundamentally the reason why I love doing this podcast is I think of the countless number of people throughout my career who have either been mentors or for me or have put out content, have put out books, have spoken on stages that have 
left these small imprints along my career that have kind of nudged me along the way. And I think, and you said it yourself, wouldn't be able to carve that path without those mentors. And so, you know, the paying it back is just a big part of, of being able to serve others, which is fundamentally what leadership is. Yeah, I remember someone who I considered to be a mentor, CMO that I worked with both at Oracle and, and at a Primo, uh, Lisa Arthur. And I remember saying to her, I would watch her present on stage and say, oh, wow, I'd love to be a CMO, but I could never go on stage and do what you do. And she would just look, of course you can. And at the time, I was absolutely terrified of public speaking. When I say this today, people are like, you kidding me? You, you didn't like public speaking? Because now it's my favorite part of the job. There's nothing I love more than getting on stage in front of thousands of people, looking at how a keynote comes together. We're just coming out of our customer conference a couple of weeks ago where I got to deliver a keynote back on the big stage for the first time in a couple of years. And to think that I thought I couldn't do that. And I had someone along the way who stopped me and said, yes, you can. Of course you can. And that was the first time and I thought, well, maybe I could. And so I did, right? And I think those mentors are absolutely vital to our advancement. And you're talking there about like limiting beliefs, right? This mindset or this yeah. thought process that somebody else can do something, but that you couldn't. And I think what's really interesting to me is that when you talk to a lot of those people or you listen to those podcast interviews, those people also didn't think that they could right. do that. Like when you like Shark Tank and Mark Cuban is like, a perfect example of talk about like humble beginnings turning into one of the largest enterprise software sales that has happened of a small group with a single owner like that. When you look back, like what are the things, the resources that really like allowed you to be able to set yourself up for success or to be able to get you on a path? Yeah, I think that we're often our own worst limiters or our own worst critics, right? And I think going back to that example of why was I able to do it when I thought that I couldn't? And I think that either have to stop the chatter in your head that holds you back or change the talk track in your head that's holding you back and put a different talk track in there. But I mean, the simple reality for me is that I found myself landed a CMO job at a fairly large organization, a company called PHH. It was my first CMO job when I left Oracle. You know, I knew it was a big job and I was young. I was 35 years old and the company, the entire executive team was older men. I was the only female. There was an HR leader who was a female as well, but it was a very masculine company and older demographic. So, you know, I really did not fit in at all. But I remember I got there and all of a sudden there was just this ex. I had a big team. I had like 100 people. I'd never managed more than I think 20 or 30 people. And suddenly I have 100 people. I'm expected to be the CMO. And I got in there and I very quickly realized, wow, there's this expectation that I'm going to do this public speaking. There was like my first day, there was this all hands meeting with a thousand people where I had to get up and speak. And you find yourself and suddenly there you are and people are looking at you and you better do it. And I think that those are environments where some people would think, oh, I could never do that. But sure you can, because what's the alternative? I'm going to fall flat on my face in front of these expectations and these thousands of people. So I think if you put yourself in a position where you ask for what you want, you go for it with everything that you've got, and then you find yourself in the position and then you just do it, right? You just stop that. I can't do it. And you just, of course you can do it. I really believe that whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're absolutely right. And so I don't think that other than asking for what you want and going for it and then actually doing it, don't hold yourself back. That's certainly the biggest secret to my success. Yeah, I think along the way too, like as you walk into that first CMO role, there's a little bit of like this imposter syndrome or even Absolutely. like going into the product marketing role because like 
a company like Oracle, I mean, the number of resumes of very qualified product marketers that you would have been up against for that role, it can be easy to be able to get into that mindset of this is really challenging to do. And I remember at one point in my career, I was reporting to a woman named Sue Noakes. She was a previous COO at T-Mobile. And I remember, you know, we were in this meeting and I felt similar to you, you know, youngest one in the room by a long shot, only minority person of color in the room. It was a meeting, it was planning strategy for the following year. First time I had ever had a seat at the table. And as Lin-Manuel Miranda said, I was in the room where it happened. (laughs) And I remember walking out of that meeting, I was talking to Sue in the hallway and I mentioned, you know, yeah, we really think about doing X, Y, and Z. And she turns to me and she goes, Vince, well, why didn't you say that in the meeting? (laughs) And And it was the first time that I had realized as we're walking down the hallway, she goes, you're in this position for a reason and you have a seat at the table for a reason. And it's be able to provide that perspective. And in my head, in the past, I had always looked at it as it was them, right? Like this group that you have kind of like on a pedestal. And it was the first time where in a year later, an executive coach told me, you have to realize there's no them anymore. Like it's you. Exactly. Yeah. And And that's terrifying. It is terrifying because up until that point, you're the one filling out the employee survey going, oh, yeah, the culture here, they need to fix that. Yeah. yeah. And when you realize that that's you now, it's an empowering position to be in. And it's an immense amount of responsibility. But there is that switch there in the mentality of I can do this. I need to do this. And I owe this to my team. My team deserves me at my best. And it's a super powerful switch that you have to kind of go through. And I think the other part of that, I don't think people realize is that you mentioned imposter syndrome. I don't know that that ever really goes away. I mean, a lot of CMO groups or a lot of you know female executive groups, and it comes up at some point that, wow, I don't know how I got here. And I feel like today's the day I'm going to be found out. I'm just a huge imposter. I have no idea what I'm doing like that. That really doesn't go away. I still feel like I don't maybe not as often as I used to, but because I've you know, been a CMO for a long time, but I still frequently feel like, oh, my gosh, today's the day they're going to kick me out of here and realize I've got no idea what I'm doing and I'm just winging it the whole time. And I think yeah. successful people feel like that. You know, you've got confidence and you're able mm-hmm. to, to make the decisions and carry forward and make the switch and realize that, wow, I'm the leader now. They're looking to me to figure this out. But that doesn't mean that we feel like we have all the answers all the time. And I think that can be empowering for younger people to realize is that I do not, (laughs) I seldom feel like I have all the answers, right? (laughs) Yeah. And uh, a perfect example of that in my head is a gentleman named Jason. He's the the editor-in-chief of uh, Entrepreneur Magazine. He just put out a book over the summer. And every time he goes to an airport and he sees his book at the airport, he posts it on his Instagram stories and like people tag him and then he's like resharing it. And but he's being really authentic about it in the way that he shares it on social media, where like the shock and awe and the novelty of it for him, like hasn't worn off yet, where he's like, pinch me, like, is this real? Like my book is there. And then when you step back and you look at his career, he's the editor in chief of Entrepreneur Magazine today. Right. And that to many is like the pedestal of the highlight of somebody's publishing career. And, you know, for him, like he's going through and and is one of the few that is actually still sharing kind of that perspective in an authentic manner, like you said. I think it makes you vulnerable. I think being vulnerable as a leader is powerful. And I think, you know, more Mm -hmm. leaders need to step into that. 
I know for a fact that my team likes it when I say, wow, I don't know. Let's figure that out together. It's empowering to admit that you don't have all the answers and that you'd like their input and their help and that we have to figure this out. It makes everyone feel better about the fact that they sometimes don't have the answers. A hundred percent. I think the other piece too, and this is one of the things that I love about marketing over the last 10 years is that, you know, marketing has really moved into a very much so a data-driven exercise. Yeah. And I think when you go backwards to the past of the worlds of like placing ads in newspapers and direct mail campaigns, although direct mail campaigns are definitely making a resurgence, you know, the day of the, the old school brand marketer is really gone. But the thing I love about data driven marketing is that I have been wrong so many times where somebody has come to me and said, I want to run this campaign. I want to do it this way. It's going to cost this much money. And I don't think it'll work, but I'm always open to being proven wrong. And I absolutely love it when I get surprised where yeah. in an A-B test, the winning version is not intuitively what I thought would have been a right or wrong. But that's the beauty of marketing and giving it your shot now. Well, and I think I'm old enough to remember it used to be okay to say, oh, I don't know how we're going to, you can't really measure, brand. you can't really measure these things. And, yeah, it'll, and then, it'll improve our brand awareness. <laughs> yeah, you can't measure that. But yeah, that's not the case anymore. Now we're measuring everything. And to your point, it's the beauty of the data, right? I love it when I'm proven wrong. I did not think that was going to work. Here's the data saying it did. So great. Let's adjust in real time and move forward in this other direction. Yeah, and I think that's where, as a marketer, being able to build the case for running that campaign at a small yeah. scale. And the beauty of it is these small scale tests, you could literally be talking about a thousand dollars, a few thousand yeah, dollars. Yeah. You know, let's go test it in one niche industry in this many zip codes or whatever, however the targeting can be done in that small slice. You know, if it works, then we scale it. Tell me about like how you think about marketing specifically in your career, a lot of software type solutions, mostly B2B, if not all B2B, if I remember correctly from your resume, yeah. like how do you approach marketing new campaigns and what are the trends that you are seeing right now kind of evolving those campaigns? I think that, as you said, I'm a career B2B marketer and B2B pretty much my entire career and software. And we're always undergoing changes. I mean, ever since I think in kind of roughly the 2006, 2007 timeframe, we started talking about marketing automation and then we started measuring everything. And since that time, it's just every few years, there's a new technology or trend. But right now, I think what's happening is we're moving into the maturation of the MarTech stack and us having the ability to be very specific and laser targeted and be able to understand B2B companies, right? We're targeting certain titles or certain personas within industries or accounts. And we understand like where they're going online, what research they're doing, what problems they're trying to solve. And we're getting very specific and targeted about crafting content to reach them at these different phases. And we're able to see the results of that in real time. And so it's very different than, you know, the campaign process used to be, all right, we're going to come up with an idea for a campaign and we're going to create all this content and then we're going to run it for a year. And then sure, you know, we might have leads coming in along the way, but then we'll see like, you know, how did we do? And that's just completely out the window now. I don't even know if we're doing six month plans anymore. It used to be we do a yearly plan and then it moved to six months. Now, and I'm not even sure it's quarterly anymore. We're doing very account-based, hyper-targeted, get reactions in real time based on trends that we're seeing from research online or intense signals that we're getting back from our technologies. And we're adjusting our campaigns on a, a almost a monthly basis, if not a, a quarterly basis. And I just think 
that trend is so powerful and it changes the way that we think about developing campaigns. It changes the way we work with sales teams. I think it's brought the marketing and the sales team much closer together because we've got to work very tightly integrated on these things. I think it gives marketing a much more strategic seat at the table because we've got all this data, right, to bring back to the business and say, this is who we're targeting. This is what they're doing out there online. This is what's resonating with them and what's not. And so we've got to be there with our content, our campaigns, our strategy, and the right tools to be able to to capitalize on all that in real time. And it's a dramatic shift from what it was even 10 years ago. You talk about the relationship there between marketing and sales, like we're in an era now where the qualified lead, like forget just qualified, like let's talk about people who are actively searching for a solution right Right now. now. Right now, you can take a look at organizations where more than 10 people have done a specific Google search or have downloaded specific white papers or are searching competitor solutions currently. And The other piece that I love is the ability to be able to understand. I think a few years ago, it was acceptable to be able to have a few different personas and to kind of broadly say, the CFOs of our target product have this problem. Whereas now, I don't even think it does it justice to be able to say, here's the buying committee and here's the persona (laughs) for the buying committee. You know, let's talk about what this specific person is looking for in this specific industry, because we actually have the ability to be able to tap into that data and really personalize content at scale. And the personalization of content at scale, I think, is the piece that is just an absolute game changer. It is a game changer if done right. It's also daunting for marketing teams, right? I mean, marketing teams, especially on the B2B side, we spend the majority of our time creating content, the majority of our time trying to personalize content, the majority of our time trying to figure out, all right, is this resonating based on what we're hearing and intent-based signals, et cetera. And things are changing there as well. I think we're undergoing a fundamental shift right now in how content is discovered. And I'm sure you saw a couple of weeks ago, there was uh, headlines about the fact that TikTok has uh, surpassed Google as the most popular website on the planet. And now we're searching for things within TikTok, within Instagram. We're doing searches within those social media sites and content is popping up there and we're conducting transactions right within those platforms. And so, you know, what does that mean for Google going forward, right? They're making a bunch of changes to their strategy to try to respond Mm -hmm. to this. And so what does this mean for marketers who are thinking about the kind of content that they're creating, how it's going to get discovered, the all popular universal Google algorithm? Is it going to be displaced by TikTok algorithms? Who knows, right? We're in the middle of this shift right now. And it has dramatic implications for the way that marketers are thinking about creating content and how that's going to get discovered. I completely agree. And the difference between good content and mediocre content and the changes that Google has made in the search engine this year It used to be if you had the right domain authority, you had enough backlinks, you had the right keywords in your content that you could rank on a page one, you could rank in that number one spot. And now the amount of contact and the breadth of content that is necessary to be able to be perceived as an authority in a particular space, you have to build all around those keywords as opposed to just having individual pages. But that's not even the most interesting thing. You know, to your point on TikTok, the content is fundamentally different. So in a world where in the past, much of the content was in written form, you had a lot of white papers. Like today, the attention span is so much shorter. People are not reading through dense white papers. But on top of that, I think the most interesting thing happening on Google right now is the fact that YouTube shorts are showing up in Google results. Yeah. And so if you're a company where all of your content is written, 
yeah. and you start seeing if you do a search today for how to cook specific dishes, the fact that YouTube shorts are showing up for how to cook right. that cheesecake is a complete upside down change from the past world of we're going to crank out this many blog posts. Yeah. And I mean, video is rapidly overtaking, if hasn't already, the preferred form of content. No one wants to read anything anymore. And it's interesting to see how the search engines are changing as a result of that. I mean, again, back to how are things getting found and what's going to get clicked on and what's the implication for the marketing team who's sitting there thinking about what's my content plan look like to be able to reach the target audiences I want to reach? They've got to start thinking about it from that perspective versus just thinking about got these accounts that I know are looking for this and I'm going to create this white paper or this blog post to lead them back. They now need to, they need to think with video first now. A hundred percent. When I invited you onto this podcast, I think the email literally said, will you come join me on the podcast? And you and I are here recording video for anybody who's listening on the podcast. There's a video version of this. But also this technology didn't exist even just a few short years ago yeah. where you and I could jump on something like this that is, I have no idea what webcam you're using. I have no idea what microphone you're right. using, but it's a near production quality, good enough video where it looks way more polished than it would have a few years ago all using what is probably a $29 a month tool, which is. Yeah. By the way, I'm using the camera embedded in my Mac. I'm not using any special equipment. I don't have a microphone. I've just got my camera on and I'm talking through the audio in my computer. And I do a lot of these. And this is the setup I use. And the audio is always, I almost never have anyone come back and say, oh, can you change out your. So the time is gone. And I think it, it's not as authentic anymore as a result to have these highly polished interactions. People want it quick. They want authenticity. They want it to be low production value because that means that it was spontaneous and it popped up versus this slick, overproduced, highly expensive content form. So even video is evolving, right? It doesn't have to be this highly produced situation anymore. We can just jump on the equipment that we have available and boom, we're content producers. I 100% agree with you. And really smart SaaS companies are doing this really well today. One of my favorite examples in the marketplace is Drift. They're a conversational messaging tool. You might have seen like their yep. lead gen sales chat widget on the bottom corner of a lot of websites where they literally put out low quality content from a visual standpoint, super high quality content from a content standpoint. Yeah. And much of it is done with what appears to be literally cell phones walking around yeah. the office with cell phones, <laughs> recording videos that end up on LinkedIn. The other thing that I think is brilliant about what they have done too, is it's not just their marketing team that puts out this content. They've empowered their sales team to actually put out content as well. But you could tell there's this overarching framework behind it in terms of how the messaging is crafted. That messaging never changes. But the fact that they have account executives who are recording this content, then putting it out to their LinkedIn networks is a complete mixture of it makes announcing. me a little nervous <laughs> <laughs> yeah a hundred percent you're giving up control yeah. a bit there the, CMO, the controller right? the message and they go all right i want them to do this but it also terrifies me a little bit <laughs> and i think the other side of that too this is like the age-old in a lot of larger enterprise deals the marketing material is actually the powerpoint presentation or the google slide yeah. presentation now and the best marketing materials are the ones that the client actually sees yeah because if it doesn't get used Anyway, you know, it's really interesting how they're evolving that where almost each person on the sales team is their own little kind of micro thought leader to their LinkedIn network. And yeah. that completely changes the way that, that things are sold. So 
wrapping up here, a few questions. What is that Google search that you're doing for how to cook XYZ? Like, what's that favorite dish that you love to cook? And how'd you learn to make it? I don't know if I'm doing a Google search on this one in particular, but I love to make paella. I love Spain. I haven't been there since pre-pandemic, but you know, I'm always trying to perfect my, because there's so many different ways to make paella. I've got all the pans and I've got, you know, multiple different ways that I do it. So I'm always trying out different things and you can pretty much pop anything in a paella and call it good. But that's my, and lately I've been making it on the grill. So, Ooh. you know, put it on the grill and just let it, kind of simmer away. And I mean, I think the the thing you really want to get to when you're making the paella is you want to have the like the little crusty bits on the bottom. Like I love perfect. that. Yeah. So yeah. you want to scrape that off and have that be. So I, I feel like you know, I'm at the point where if I don't achieve that in the paella, it's a failure. Even though yeah, everybody else should be like, oh, this is delicious. I'm like, yeah, no, we didn't quite get the crusty bit on the bottom. So it's not quite right. That's my favorite. I'm just now in holiday mode because I don't like to make traditional things for the holidays. So like I never make turkey for Thanksgiving. So I'm trying to figure out what my holiday menus are going to be this year. I love that. Spain has a place in my heart. One of my groomsmen for my wedding couldn't get time off to come to my bachelor party. And he was teaching at the time in Spain. And so we decided to take the bachelor party to him. Smart. And so some of the best food that I've had in my life, but I'm with you. It's that crust where I'd be happy to serve everybody else the paella just so that I could get the yep. crust the leftover crust at the bottom. It's like that brownie pan where it's all edges. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I think you might make a paella this weekend. You've now inspired me. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love that. Yes. Two last final questions for you. Like, what are the things that you're curious and that you love learning about right now? And for anybody listening or watching this, how do they keep in touch with you? Where should they follow you? Yeah, you know, we haven't talked about the metaverse at all. I don't know where you stand on the metaverse. Actually, let's extend the episode. Let's talk about the better. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I'm curious about. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I just, you know, like I mentioned a couple of events ago, we just had our customer conference two weeks ago. And so I just have been spending the last couple of months preparing my keynote. And I had a segment on the metaverse in the keynote. And wow, it's, I mean, it's something that elicits a lot of responses from people, either people that are, oh, this is ridiculous, it's never going to happen. It's, you know, they rail off on Mark Zuckerberg. And if somebody, I think people seem to think he's got the metaverse cornered, which is not the case. So what I'm curious about right now, what I'm interested in right now are practical applications for the technology. Because if you're going to be a stickler on metaverse, there is no metaverse right now. We don't quite have the technology to bring all the pieces together. You've got to have actual metaverse. You've got to have concurrency and be able to get people together. And we can do that in you know, certain gaming type environments or other closed off environments, but not at the scale that we think of with regard to the internet. So it's not here yet, but these immersive environments, augmented reality, virtual reality, brands are doing interesting things with those that are solving real world business problems. So what I'm curious about and interested in right now is get rid of the hype about how we're all going to be unicorns in business meetings in the metaverse and walking around, right? And let's talk about how we solve business problems with this cool technology and what that means for marketing. And I saw some good examples of that that I did in my keynote a couple of weeks ago for automotive in particular and having these virtual showrooms set up where you can have these immersive experiences and see up close the vehicle without actually having to go to the showroom. And that to me is practical and it's interesting. I completely agree with you on the metaverse. You know, I think when you take a look at whether it's metaverse, whether it's Web3 or whether it's crypto or really not even crypto, but blockchain technology, yeah. 
that you see this like extremes of the vision, but that's kind of like the concept car that a lot of automotive manufacturers, like when you go to the auto shows or if you go to like CES where they have the concept cars, these cars look crazy. The only companies actually putting out cars similar to this is Tesla and, and the Tesla truck. But otherwise you look at it and you go, this is absolutely absurd. But the bigger thing is like, there's individual pieces of technology built into that car where that component, that function, that feature, yeah. that benefit might roll out to a consumer use more quickly. And in the Vetiverse space, it's really weird. I can completely see it happening is when I learned how to build my first website at the age of like 13, something like that, you know, back when GeoCities and Babelfish and Yahoo was a thing before Yahoo was even a search engine. It was a directory with a thousand links <laughs> taking yeah. you into places. But that first website that I built, I built with, I think like three or four other people that I'm sure we met in like an AOL chat room or something like that. <laughs> and that website was about video games and it ended up growing to be a 2 million visitor website annually. And we started getting... PR companies reaching out to us. And a funny story, I, you know, I had always wanted to go to E3, which is a video game convention when I was younger. And Nintendo or Nintendo's PR agency, Golan Harris at the time, invited me to meet with them at E3. But I was only like 15 years old and you had to be 18 to get into E3. So I had to, I had to send them an email response that said, sorry, due to other conflicts, I'm unable to join you. And I'm Where's sure there. ID, you would, I feel like a fake ID <laughs> for that. I mean, that's a great reason to get a fake ID. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I bet that's one of the most common places that people <laughs> actually show up with a fake ID. All, all these people that know how to Photoshop and play video games. But, you know, the thing with building that was I never met those three or four other people. We all operated in an online world, essentially operating this media publication where we actually ended up launching e-commerce features and actually selling things. But all of that was done virtually. And for two of those people, to this day, I don't know their real names because <laughs> I only knew them as their forum handles. And so this was my first step into business. Obviously, since then, I've worked for not real companies is not the right way to describe it, but I've worked for what is now mainstream business and yeah. corporate environments and startup environments that does not look like that at all. And yet that was kind of like my first experience joining a team, building something, generating revenue. But I think the most interesting application of blockchain right now is the move not in cryptocurrency, but into the world that we live in today. Yeah, I think NFTs are less interesting because it's an image, but when you apply that blockchain technology to real physical art, actually real is not the right word. NFT, I understand it is considered art, but physical, tangible art today, it would be great to be able to see the buying history of yeah. a painting or when it, it's put on the market and it doesn't sell. It would be great to be able to validate that this is a true and authentic painting. And a lot of those things can't be done in what is the traditional art world and is being done in blockchain. I think there's a ton of things that are interesting like that. In my keynote that I delivered two weeks ago, I used imagery that was generated from AI. 
it was a program or a company called Midjourney. And so you mm-hmm. enter in these text-based descriptions and it generates imagery yeah. from it. And it was incredible. There's still manipulation that has to go on. It's because I, I had people come up to me or send me notes after and say, I went to Midjourney and the images I created <laughs> were not usable. Like you can't just enter in a keyword and expect to get the images yeah. that I showed in my keynote. There's more that but <laughs> the artwork, it's incredible. I mean, it's a slightly different topic than you were talking about, but it's, it's still a similar, like, is that art? Someone yeah. just won an art contest. I think it was in Minneapolis. He submitted a piece of art that he used creating that program and he won. And there's all this controversy about, well, wait a minute, that's not art. So, yeah. you know, we can go on and on about this forever, but I think we both have to move on to other things. And sadly, <laughs> this has been a great conversation. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. One of my favorite websites that I'll leave everybody with is a website called This Person Does Not Exist. <laughs> yeah. And so this person does not exist. Every time that you refresh it, it'll generate an image of oh a person that does not exist. And so these are all AI generated people that wow. do not exist. You can't tell. And you cannot tell. And as a marketer, selfishly, deep fake videos. So deep fake videos are like imitation videos where you take enough videos of a specific person, you analyze how they they speak you analyze like their facial expressions and things like that. And after that, you can type a sentence and get a video of that person saying that sentence. Oh, I'm doing this. I want to do this. (laughs) (laughs) But for me, I just think of that as every piece of written content that we put out, we can get a polished video without actually having to film it. Right. Yeah. You talk about scaling content. We looked into using metahumans to do videos, but I haven't heard about this deep fake video technology yeah. have to look and into that but yeah it's you think about back to the content daunting content for marketing teams it's a way to scale it and so i think the possibilities of this technology are super exciting you just have to put the hype aside and think about you know what are the practical applications because there are some that exist today Paige, it has been a pleasure chatting with you today i can't wait to have you back on the show yeah. in the future and we'll take a look at maybe we'll be recording that episode in the metaverse or maybe yeah I'd, I'd love to do a whole episode <laughs> with you on the metaverse we can react to things that we're seeing brands doing and see what we think about them. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Paige, for joining us today. We have your LinkedIn URL up on the screen. If you want to follow Paige, connect with her on LinkedIn. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much. This has been Destination CMO, hosted by Vincent Famvan. Because marketing careers are often highly specialized and rarely linear, Destination CMO invites senior marketers to share stories and insights from their professional journey. If you liked this episode, join the community by following us on social media. We have links to all our platforms in the show notes. And join us next time for the most important stories in business and tech, explained through the lens of a senior marketer. Thanks for listening to Destination CMO. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.